Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, those things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 579 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday. It's January 4th, 2011, which means this is really show number two of 2011. But again, it's episode 579. Amazingly enough, we will soon be on to episode 600. Um... It just seems really, really strange to me that this, you know, thing started right around two and a half years ago now. And we've done this many shows together and we've accomplished so many things together in both the World of the Survival podcast and in the individual lives of the listeners. The letters, uh, the emails, things like that. They keep coming to me, folks, and keep sending them. I don't always answer everything, but I read everything. I really didn't plan on opening today's show uh, saying that. But sometimes things just move you, and you, you feel like you got to say something. And I know I try to say I th thank you so many times to you guys for what you've done to help make this show a success and what you've done to help help me live my dream, which is to spend every day of my life helping other people figure out how to be prepared for the worst and to live the best lives they can, whether times get tough or even if they don't. This is really what I want to do with my life. And because of you guys, I'm able to do that. So thank you. Uh, Now that I've said that, let's go ahead and get today's show kicked off. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about permaculture today. I said we would do this yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I'm following through on it today. I'm still dealing with a little bit of hoarseness in the voice, but I've got about three cups of uh, tea and honey in me. I'm starting at it's like 10 o'clock. Usually I'm publishing the show by now. Today I'm just starting recording it. That's why it's out late today, but that's giving me some time to work on my throat uh, after waking up in the morning. So you guys said you really didn't hear it yesterday. But trust me, I felt it. I'll get through this one for you. Hopefully, we'll be on the mend soon, and I can be back to full bore, full, full tilt bore uh, with the voice. But uh, we are going to talk about permaculture today, and I haven't really dug deep into the concept for almost a hundred episodes. And when I went back and checked that, I went. It's time to bring this one back up. To me, this is one of the one of the biggest solutions we have to our problems in the world is this concept of permaculture. That's what I'm going to talk about it today. We're going to talk a lot about the agricultural components of it today, but I'm going to keep pushing you to see beyond agriculture and to see the methodology, the design, the ethics, the principles, the core thought process of permaculture as a troubleshooting manual for problems. And that if you have a problem in your life, you know, it doesn't cost anything to put it through the process of permaculture thought for 10 minutes before you try a conventional solution. Just try it, and if you get a good result from it, let me know what happens. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. I don't call her wonderful. Well, I do, but that's not where I got the word from. I got it from you guys, the audience. Uh, I just got an email from a guy that said, and it the subject line was, it really does happen. And when he said it several times, you've mentioned that when people order from Mary Beth uh, at silverandgoldshop.com, That if they order in the morning and the price of silver goes down before the close of business in the evening, that they'll get an email from her adjusting their costs down uh, and taking into account the fall in the price of silver. And there's no reason for her to do this. I just wanted to let you know it just happened to me. And the guy had bought like, I think he had bought like a thousand dollars worth of coins. So it was a significant, you know, one or two percent uh, drop in silver for the day, which doesn't happen very often anymore. But 
You know, she did it. And he was like, I can't believe this really does happen. Uh, that's Mary Beth. That's ethics. That's principles. You're going to hear a lot about ethics and principles today. Um, I can tell you the ethics and principles is why I brought silverandgoldshop.com on as a sponsor and why they continue to be a sponsor. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. ShelfReliance is an awesome company with great innovative storage solutions. I wanted to let you guys know, I put this on the blog yesterday. Uh, they just changed the offer they give to the member support brigade. They were doing 7% off everything, and there's some channel issues with that. So what they did is they increased the discount on shelving the 10%, and then it's 5% off all the Thrive food, food products they offer. So if you're a member support brigade member, you're going to deal with Shelf Reliance. Make sure you get your discount. There's two discount codes there. And uh, if you want to order food and shelving in one order and save on shipping, you're going to need to call your order in if you're an MSB member because they can only take one discount code on an order form online. That's just a system limitation. So they're happy to do it for you manually. So if you're going to use your discount code, uh, call in, give both of them. But, folks, I'll put a link today to my review of the Shelf Reliance uh, Pantry uh, food storage system, which is a small compact system, and the Harvest 72 in the show notes. Check them out. Great uh, food storage solutions. The other thing I wanted to mention about... Um, Shelf Reliance, again, the voice here. You don't maybe hear the hoarseness, but it causes me to stop. Um, they just sent me some freeze-dried fruit, strawberries and pineapple. I'm going to do a review for the, of those for you uh, probably this week. I'll be able to knock that out. It won't require that much talking. And uh, I want to tell you, it's pretty awesome, especially the pineapple. So check out not just their shelving, but their Thrive Food products as well. Next up, make sure you connect with us, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all that good stuff. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts, like the one I just talked about with Shelf Reliance, but to over 20 different vendors. Uh, and I now take, I've always taken silver, but I've now formalized the way I take silver. Uh, I am now, and from this point forward until things change, taking the following in silver for uh, membership. Uh, one ounce of any 999 pure silver bullion. So that's a silver eagle, an AOCS silver round, a, a 999 pure silver bar, you name it. One ounce per year. And I am also taking, if you want to pay a 90% silver coin, 1964 and prior, uh, dimes, quarters, halves, or dollars, $1.50 in face value of silver coin per year. That's now on the form. It's now on the sign-up options. Much easier to do. And I did that because silver's at an all-time high, and you need an incentive to spend your silver. Uh, of course, you can still pay by cash, check, or money order. It's $50 a year. Or you can pay by PayPal. Again, $50 a year. Sometimes I run a sale. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, again, I, I, I was... Kind of thinking, you know, let's get into 2011. Let's go into some new subjects. And I got a lot of great stuff planned. I got the herbology show on the, 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 um, you know, the, the concepts of herbology and looking at the terms that you read, uh, that tell you what the herb does and going deeper into those for tomorrow. That's going to be a really interesting show, kind of academic, but really interesting. I've got the Patriot Nurse coming on next week to talk about, you know, building your own home first aid kit. I've got a lot of new stuff coming. But even though we're way early into January, I, as I looked and realized how long it's been since I talked about permaculture, realized that right now people all over America that listen to this show are planning, what am I going to do in the garden for 2011? What am I going to do around the homestead? What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my prepping? What am I going to do with my job? What am I going to do with my, what am I going to do? You know, that's this time of year. That's what it's all about. The plan. How, you know, the resolution period. What am I going to do differently this year? How am I going to go forward? 
What am I going to change? What am I not going to do anymore? What am I going to do better? And I realized the answer to many, not all, but many of those questions is in permaculture. And if you've not heard me talk about permaculture before, and I know there's plenty of you that haven't, that's another reason we're doing this show today, then you might think that permaculture is just, well, instead of planting, you know, uh, lettuce and, and peppers and, and onions and tomatoes, I plant some trees and bushes and vines, and those are permanent crops, and once they're producing, I can get a, a yield from them every year. Well, there is a permaculture concept there, definitely, but... I want to kind of point out to you something so that we can get in the right frame of mind as we go forward with what permaculture is today, how that can still be monoculture. I gave a lecture about permaculture, and I talked about even more than I'm going to talk about today. Back in 2009, or was it 2009, in California at Dirt Time. It was, it was Dirt Time, yeah, 2008, whichever one it was. It was a few years ago. And I had this huge group of people there, and I talked about all these different principles of permaculture and bringing in multiple species and having you know a system with layers where you have big trees and mid-sized trees and bushes and vines and creating swales which are ways to retain the water and all of the, I mean I just want you to understand because if I try to do the whole thing I won't get the show done today I just want you to understand that there was a lot going on here there were a lot of different principles coming into play and the last thing I was describing was a great big field of almond or peach trees with nothing else there except, you know, drip irrigation and mulch in a big flat area so that trucks could drive through and easily harvest the fruit. So a guy comes up to me after the presentation and says, but what you're saying won't work. You know, he's like, I, I, I try to grow as organic as I can, but I still have to use chemical fertilizers. I don't use any pesticides. I take some loss to that, uh, but I do, I, I still can't call my stuff organic, but I have this orchard. Uh, and I grow, you know, I think it was apricots on one side and peaches on the other in, in Southern California. And I do everything, you know, I put down deep mulch. I've got, you know, a foot of mulch. So it's not like I'm not doing that. I'm doing everything else I can. And I, I am able to do this without pesticides. But there's no way I can grow things with the, the, the small amount of irrigation, 100% natural, organic, and get anywhere near the yield that I get right now. It won't work. And I had some people around me that were just throwing things at him, like, compost is all you need. And I realized those people didn't get it either. Here's the thing. He's right. It won't work. If you have 40 acres of one species of tree in perfectly straight lines on a perfectly flat grade with a, with a massive drip irrigation system put out there, you can grow a lot of fruit. And it, to be fair, it's better than the way a lot of other people do it. But it will never be permaculture. Because it doesn't have diversity. It's one thing. It's monoculture with trees. And a lot of these places that are failing in Southern California right now, in the San Joaquin Valley, because of the stupidity of the people that turned off the water, even though the water is an aggravating circumstance, the monoculture model, the flat things, depending 100% on irrigation systems rather than water conservation systems, are why they're failing. And this will make so much more sense as we go forward. I just thought it was a good story to give you a grounding going forward. This is how people misunderstand permaculture. It's not just doing everything 100% naturally and organically. That's organic growing. Now, organic growing is a piece of permaculture, but organic growing is not permaculture. It would be like saying, well, all cars run on tires, therefore the entire technology of a car is based on the tires. There's a lot to be said for the tires, they hold the car to the road. They give it control. They give it steering. 
Bald tires, the car wrecks. Flat tires, the car won't go. A tire blows out at high speed, the car will wreck. No tires, the car sits on the ground and can't go anywhere. So the cars are, the tires are intrinsic to the car. But without the motor, the tires are meaningless. Without an accelerator, the tires are meaningless. Without a braking system, the car can't be controlled, no matter how good the tires are. So we have to see permaculture that way. Whenever we look at one component of it, like perennial plantings, or organic gardening methods, or solar panels, we have to understand that those things aren't permaculture. They are things that permaculturists use to meet their goals. And sometimes they don't use all of them, or sometimes they may use things that we wouldn't think of as permaculture, because permaculture is really about establishing a permanent culture. See, when I started this show, I knew very little about permaculture. And it's become my life pursuit, uh, with a second only to prepping in general, since I've really learned what it was. And what I, what I got on this microphone and said years and years ago was, permanent culture is permanent agriculture. And it was so short-sighted, but I didn't know I was being short-sighted. Permaculture is permanent culture. It's a sustainable way to live for people. And it was originally created by two people. One was named Bill Mollison, and he's the guy today that usually people think of when they think of permaculture. Especially if they're just learning about it because he's the author of Permaculture 1, Permaculture 2, Permaculture Designer's Manual. He's been the most public. He's been uh, speaking the longest. He's done the most videos and, and, and the most workshops. And, you know, he's a good guy that really made the movement go. But as he developed the system, he was assisted by a guy who's kind of resurfaced in recent years and is being heard from more named David Holgram. And it's really those two men together that created permaculture in its modern form. But what you need to understand is that they didn't create permaculture. They might have created the word. And they might have created kind of a little mini market around that word and created ethical core principles that go into a certification where they copyrighted the word. And if you want to say you're a permaculturist, you have had to have studied within this, this, this collective they've created and been certified to do that. Now you can go out and practice permaculture in your backyard tomorrow morning and you can set up a business doing it. And you can call it anything you want, but you can't call it permaculture officially as a business unless you have that certification. But that is about protecting the concept from being bastardized is the way that, that, that Mollison would describe it by people that would start calling something that isn't permaculture, permaculture. Because the reality is they can't take it back from you. Once you have it, you have it. It's making sure the practitioner is grounded in the core principles. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why it's really about the rules of design and the rules of ethics. And if we follow those, no matter what it is, it's permaculture. And it doesn't matter if it involves growing food or solving a financial crisis. If it follows the rules of design and principle and ethics, it's permaculture. And I guess the best way to start out with that is to really start out with the ethics. And that the ethics are driven by what's called the Prime Directive. Now, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know about the Prime Directive of, of Star Trek, which uh, really has absolutely nothing to do with uh, permaculture. I don't even know if uh, Mollison and Holgram were aware 
of the, the term of Prime Directive in the Star Trek stuff because Mollison was running around in the forest cutting down trees as, as a forester and then got tired of that and then ran off and basically did the uh, the eco-bush hippie thing in, in the wilderness for five years and then came back and put these principles in action by going into the forest and looking at it. So I, I have no idea if there's a, a line there. But the, but the line that is there for me is the Prime Directive in, in the Star Trek you know novels and movies and, and shows overrides everything. It's like our Constitution is supposed to be in the United States. If you have a question, do we or don't we, then if you're not sure, you go to the Prime Directive and it'll tell you whether or not it's even allowed. And that's what the Prime Directive of Permaculture is really all about. And with this one Prime Directive, all the other things I'm going to tell you come off it, but it would be really hard to violate any of them if you truly understood and valued the Prime Directive. And that Prime Directive is so simple. Prime Directive is simply, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and for that of our children. Let me say that to you again, and I want you, if you're doing something else, if you're the person that walks or jogs or works when you listen to me, I want you to pause for 30 seconds, and I want you to really take this in And I want you to think about how it applies to you and everything that you're concerned about. The very reasons you tune into this show, the very reason that one day you said, is there anybody out there that talks about survivalism? I want you to bring all of your concerns for our future to the front of your mind for just a second. And then I want to present the prime directive of permaculture to you as a solution to that problem. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Many of you are concerned about the national debt in this country and the damage being done to it by the Federal Reserve. Doesn't sound very permaculture-ish, does it? Let me read the Prime Directive to you again. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Permaculture is about living on the planet in a sustainable way. That goes into our monetary systems, our medical systems, and everything else like that. So as I continue to go forward, if you think this is just some eco-hippie nonsense, let go. If you're extreme right-wing conservative views on politics, let go here. Because I'm not going to try to change a lot of your political leanings. And if you're an extreme left-wing ideologue in the world of... Uh, environmentalism and you think that everything is just the way you see it, understand that the why I love permaculture is if you truly study it, if you truly embrace it, if you truly understand it, if you are stuck in either a right or a left paradigm, which I believe is a collective delusion presented to you designed to divide us in half, permaculture will pull the person that's on the extreme left toward the center. And it will pull the person that's on the extreme right toward the center to things that we can all agree upon. And those can be summed up in the three ethical principles that follow the Prime Directive. Principle one, care of the earth. The first thing we must do is care for the earth. Now remember, this is back to coming off of that Prime Directive. We must take responsibility for ourselves and our, our children and our existence and their existence. So no matter how much, you know, maybe you don't like the eco-hippie world, or how much you do, we can both agree on something. 
Without this planet, we're all doomed. We can't live. Without fresh air, clean water, a food supply, ways to shelter ourselves, with the air we breathe, without these things, there is no way any of us can survive. So if, like me, you think that man-made global warming due to CO2 is nonsense, you still have to say that we have to take care of this planet, that environmentalism is important. If you completely believe that the air that we exhale is warming up planet Earth, you still agree that we have to take care of the planet. And we can all look and say, the real problems that we have out there are about the pollution itself. It doesn't matter whether the CO2 from burning coal is the problem warming the planet or not. We can debate that till we're blue in the face. The problem with mining coal is mercury, mountaintop removal mining, strip mining, coal slush, dioxins and trioxins being placed into our water, toxic ash produced after the coal is burned. These are real pollutants. No matter which side of the global warming issue you're on, no one can deny that those are our, our true destructive pollutants for the planet. So one of the things we have to look is how do we get off of fossil fuels, whether you are the true believer that wants to worship and save the polar bear, or you're like me and we just want to stop polluting the damn planet. Care of the earth. Without care for the earth, none of these other things can happen. Look around, you have one planet you stand on. We have to start seeing everywhere we step on this planet in some ways as being sacred ground, because it is. When you reach down into the soil and you pick up what you see as dirt, it is the life essence that allows you to live. If you're a carnivore, it grows the herbaceous layer that the, the other animals eat so you can be a carnivore. If you're a vegan, it grows the plants that you eat. And if you're an omnivore, like most of us, it does both. Without that earth, we have nothing. We have to preserve it, and we have to take care of it. That's principle one in the ethics. Principle two, and one thing to understand about permaculture, unlike some of the eugenicist nonsense that's out there, where the earth is seen at a higher level than the people, in permaculture, the ethics are equal. And ethic two is care of people. We must care for people. If we do something that harms others, it is not permaculture. If we go into a nation and enslave them financially and force them to live a different way while their people suffer so another nation can prosper, it is not permaculture. When our nation lays under the control of a banking layer, that keeps us enslaved by debt as a nation, it's not permaculture. Again, I don't care where you gravitate in your paradigm. The principles apply equally. If we are going to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children, we cannot do it at the expense of harming others. All human life has value and worth and should be seen as such. This is not, oh, let all the criminals go. They'll be fine. No. This is the people that are out there that are just trying to get along like the rest of us. They all need to be seen as having intrinsic worth as human beings. 
How many of our problems, how many of the things that you prep for, if we would look at that ethical principle and say care of people is part of the prime directive of how we view our existence, that if I'm to ensure my existence and my child's existence, then I must see you as my brother or sister, and I must ensure your existence and the existence of your children. We can debate all we want about the government system, the economic system that goes behind that, but the principle itself should say we do not harm others or to do no harm. For those of you who are of the pagan faith, you'll recognize that. Do as thou wilt and harm none. Those of you who are the Christian faith, do unto others. And just about anywhere you go with religion, you'll find that principle in the religion coming back to care of people. The third ethical principle is a return of surplus. Now this does not mean that we all go on to a commune and we work and we get just enough to live and eat and shelter ourselves. We get our five survival needs and anything beyond that gets given away to the poor and taken away in a form of tax. That's not what it means at all. Actually that would be the complete antithesis of permaculture. Permaculturists understand that if we're going to change the way the world grows its food, runs its economies handles its social issues, its economic issues. If we're going to do that, if we're going to make the planet work where we harm no one and feed everybody, then there has to be incentive. And incentive comes in the form of profit. The ethical principle three is actually a principle of profit. That when you work hard and you develop your system to a point where it produces a surplus, it is completely right and ethical for you to return that surplus by putting it into an economy and receiving a profit for it. But it's a principle where we all should have that freedom. This, this should not be the exclusive right of a multinational corporation that holds our agricultural system at economic gunpoint in the form of debt, but it should be the right of all. And that that profit can be as simple as I have chickens with eggs and you have a mulberry tree, and your mulberry tree grows over my fence, and my chickens eat your mulberries, and I get beautiful, mineral-rich eggs. So by that very action, even though you didn't ask for it, when I have surplus eggs, I offer you a few. So that's barter without even asking. Or you have a mulberry tree that's not over my fence, and I go to you and say, if we can put in a chicken run, that went under your mulberry tree, the mulberries you're not using that are rotting into the ground, my chickens could eat and I'll give you eggs, and now we have barter. Or, if I set up a small farm, and I go out, and I produce a large surplus, and sell it at a farmer's market, or to a grocery store system, or anything from the top to the bottom, the surplus must be returned. And it must be returned in a way where people have equal access to it. If we followed those three principles, let me ask you how many problems we could solve. If we didn't say the, the solution is the ethics, but if the ethics guide the solution, how many solutions? See, it's about troubleshooting. It's like when I was in the Army, folks. I was a mechanic. You know, I wasn't one of the frontline soldiers out there getting bullets shot at me. I was just a mechanic. But the most valuable thing that I learned in the Army, other than how to teach and how to learn, because the training is what it was all about, was how to troubleshoot. When a vehicle was brought to you with any problem, no matter how much you knew or didn't know, or how many times you'd seen the problem before, there was a process. Does this work? 
Yes. Then go here. Does this work? No. Then go there. Follow the process. And most of the time, within an hour, any problem could be diagnosed and a solution developed because you were following a troubleshooting process. Permaculture is a troubleshooting process. It's what it really is. It's we have land that's fallow. It won't grow anything. It has a slope, a moderate slope. It's been abused by cattle for years. The soil is in poor shape. We want to grow food on it without saturating with chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides because that violates our ethical principles. And it's not sustainable. So it violates the prime directive. It doesn't ensure our existence or our children's existence. It harms others. It doesn't care for the earth. Maybe it'll return a surplus, but not really, because by robbing the energy reserves that are needed for pesticides and fertilizers, there really isn't a surplus. We're deluding ourselves. We're getting nowhere. So the permaculturist comes in and says, what are the problems? Why can't we grow here? Well, there's a slope, and since the soil's poor, whenever it does rain, all the water runs off. Well, fine. Let's go ahead and put swales in. What are swales? Level ditches on contour. They'll stop the water from flowing away. There's also no mineral value. There's no chemical value. The soil is inert. It's dust. There's no nitrogen. There's no phosphorus. There's no potassium. There's no trace minerals. So the permaculture says, now on the banks of the swales, let's go in and plant tens of thousands of peas that will start the nitrogen process. And let's put in some pioneering nitrogen-fixing trees. And as they start to grow, they're cut and they're dropped right in place. And since the swales have prevented the runoff, all the organic matter stays there. The root systems stay in the soil and decay, and they provide carbon pathways in the soil. All of the excess biomass is left right where it's chopped. We might even harvest some of the peas and eat them, but the plant is just left in place. It decays into the soil. And we keep mulching and mulching and we keep cutting the trees and dropping their branches and letting them regrow until the nitrogen-fixing pioneer tree goes away and dies. Very few of them are left. At the same time, we were starting to grow fruit trees and nut trees and vegetables into the same system. And five years down the road, that fallow land is some of the richest soil in the world. Because we've used what nature teaches us to accelerate it, but basically the whole thing was a troubleshooting process with instead of acting like an allopathic physician, you have a headache, here's an aspirin. We act like a natural practitioner that says, you have a headache, why do you have a headache? Is it stress? Is it a brain tumor? The two solutions are completely different based on what's causing the problem. If you have stress, we can use meditation, we can use relaxation techniques, and maybe even occasionally an aspirin or willow bark. But we have to, you know, we may even treat the acute system with something that's more like a hammer to a nail, but we have to treat the underlying problem. We have to troubleshoot it. If you have a brain tumor, hopefully it's operable, and we need to get it out of your head. And two different solutions, because the problem causing the same appearing symptom is the same. So the, the appearance of the problem is both people have a headache. One has a malignant brain tumor. One has stress. Two pieces of land are fallow. One has been abused. And one simply has poor contouring. And we have different solutions to those two problems.
That's what it's all about. And we take that surplus that comes out of that corrective action and we put it back in. So then we say, well, if we're going to start doing these things, if we're going to start designing systems, if we're going to start solving the world's problems, whether we solve them in a garden or in a capital building, and if we're going to follow these three principles, then any solution must be designed. See, and that's the big problem with modern the modern world. We don't design our solutions. When we're going to design a car, they don't just start throwing crap together and go, okay, it pulls a little to the left, put a weight on the, on the right side. An engineer sits down and designs the solution. But in agriculture, in politics, everybody gets worked up over a problem, and we either apply a tax or a pesticide. There's a bug eating my corn. Well, let's genetically engineer the corn to put a toxin in the corn that'll kill the worm that eats the corn, and the corn will grow. We don't ask, how about the care of people? What does that do to our people? What about the care of the earth? What does this do to our earth? What about a return of surplus? Where is that toxin coming from? What are we pulling from to cause this event to happen? We don't ask, we just act. The city is short on funding. Instead of asking why, why are we short on funding? Is the city doing things it's not supposed to do? Is it managing its money poorly? Are people leaving our city because we've created a city that no one wants to live in? We'll just create another tax and we'll cut, we'll cut expenses and tax more. That's the solution. It's not designed. And as you can see, there's no way to follow the prime directive that way. We cannot be assuring the existence of ourselves and our children if we're focused on short-term solutions with no worry about long-term consequences. So if we're going to design systems, we need a guiding pathway or a set of principles of design. Principles of design of a car would be things like aerodynamics. We don't design a car shaped like a cube. It doesn't go through the air well. It's not going to be efficient. Okay? Principles of designing a car would include things like there must be comfort for the passenger. It must be easy to control. And there's a whole list that we could come up with of things that if we don't have those guiding principles when we design a car, we don't think about them. We might get a car that goes down the road, but it's not going to sell well. It's not going to be a good solution to the problem of my question as a consumer, how do I get from point A to point B and back in relative comfort and happiness? You want to sell me a car, you have to do that. Well, there's design principles around a car that make that happen. Well, when it comes to permaculture, there's 12 design principles that if we follow them lead us to logically end up meeting our prime directive and our three ethical principles the first one is to observe and interact it is the fool who makes a change to a system without first understanding the system so if I go to a farmer and I look at what he's doing and I see certain flaws with it And I say, you're not practicing ethical agriculture. Make these changes. And I haven't demonstrated to that farmer that I understand what he's doing now, how he got there, what his successes and failures are. He will wisely tell me to go pound sand. Because I don't understand his business. I don't understand his system. So from the classical agricultural standpoint, if I'm going to go into a biosphere and make a change, No matter how wrong the existing system is, I must first observe and interact with that system 
so that I can understand the changes and the impact they will have. If I am going to go into a business as a new manager, many people get, we've got a bad sales force, we want you to take over. We've got a bad design team, we want you to take over. The company's going into hell in a handbasket, coming as the new CEO, take over. The football team is losing, come in and take over. And the new guy comes in, says, the hell with the old way, this is the new way, this is what we're going to do, it's what I've always done, it's always worked. Seldom does it work out well when that principle is applied that way. When that person comes in and evaluates everything first, wins over the confidence of the team, whether it's a business team or a sports team, and says, now we're going to make these changes and here's why, He is seen as a leader. His principles are well-founded and followed, and success generally follows. So this is what I'm telling you, that the principles of permaculture apply to more than growing a tomato. They apply to life. They are a way we can live and the way we can solve our problems. And as we move on with observe and interaction, it's not just about the initial design, it's about the ongoing design. It's a co-creative process with nature when you're doing design for permaculture, when you're looking at growing things or energy systems for homes. And what I mean by that is that we can have a great design and a great system and things are going very well. And we start to notice that we have a particular pest insect in our design. But it's not really causing a problem yet, but it's showing up in numbers that are a little bit concerning. Now, the allopathic solution... The classic American solution, the modern world solution, spray the little suckers with some type of insecticide or spray. Permaculturists will say, what is this creature? What feeds on it? And it might say, well, they're aphids, and ladybugs feed on them. Well, ladybugs are common. Let us just wait and see if ladybugs appear. And if they do, great, problem solved. But if ladybugs don't appear, then we have to ask, why don't we have, this is a, a great place for ladybugs. At least it looks like it. They have lots of food in these aphids. Is there something we can plant that will make the area more to their liking? That's one example of observation and interaction. But another completely different example would be, I go out and I cut a plant to the ground because I don't think I want it. And I didn't know what variety of plant this was, and it immediately begins to grow back from its root system. Allopathic solution. Let's dig the root system out of the ground. Permaculturist. Oh, wait. I have something here that even when I try to kill it, comes back. Maybe I should identify what it is. Does it have any benefit to me? Even if it's just something I can feed to my rabbits or mulch, it's a high source of organic matter that, that propagates itself freely. And then if I decide, well, I'm just going to let it grow to a certain height, chop it down, feed it to my rabbits or use it for compost, I might want to pay attention. How many times can I cut this to the ground and it'll come back? Does it come back every year? Can I cut it three or four times and it goes away? If it does go away after three or four times, do I want to encourage it to reseed itself? Do I want to let it grow a little bigger and let it reseed before I cut it to the ground? If it comes back every year, no matter how many times I cut it, do I want to make sure it doesn't reseed? See, these are all observations and interactions. It's the antithesis of modern agriculture. To allow certain things to occur and only make changes as they seem to make sense and observe the change, and sometimes realize the change was wrong, put things back the way they were. The next principle is to catch and store energy. If you're not catching and storing energy in any system, you're not a permaculturist. Whether you're running an economic system, 
or an organic garden. Catching and storing energy is a natural process. Therefore, you probably are, even if you're not doing permaculture, but maybe you haven't identified where it's happening. If you're growing corn, you're catching and storing energy. The corn itself is a solar-powered machine. Do you realize that every plant is a solar collector that catches and stores energy, and that energy storage comes to a point where we call it a yield? The kernel of corn is the result of solar energy, and very little more. Water, nutrient inputs, soil, those are things that enable the process, but the energy itself comes from sunlight. Do everything right with corn. Perfect soil, perfect nutritional balance, perfect irrigation, pest-free, the absolute perfect place to grow 20 stalks of corn. Try to do it inside a warehouse without lighting. It will not grow. It will never grow without the energy input. So every plant is an energy storage machine. And we need to emulate that in all the things that we do. And this can be done in so many ways. For instance, if we have a home and we're building it from scratch and we have the ability to do whatever we want, we would want to orient the front of the home with lots of windows facing south. In the summer, the sun is high overhead and will not come into the home very much with that type of orientation. We'll get, well, we'll get lots of lighting but very little heat input because we've got the roof that's heavily insulated over the top where the sun spends most of its time. But in the winter, as the sun goes lower in the southern sky, of course this has a lot to do with what hemisphere you're in. You would reverse this if you're in the southern hemisphere. But as that sun takes its lower track, now the sunlight comes into the home. And this is the time of the year where we need to heat the home rather than keep it cool. So that energy comes into our home through the windows, and long after the sun sets, we're able to use that surplus thermal energy to help offset the heating needs in our home. We can see this more directly with something called a rocket mass heater. Most people that are in this kind of survival realm know what a basic rocket stove is. You build them with a couple cans, you know, you got them little sticks you can put in there, and it basically makes a very hot, very efficient fire. Well, you can take that same technology at a larger level, and right in the middle of a home, Build a rocket stove. And even though you look straight down into the kiln where the fire is burning, no smoke comes out. The fire burns sideways across into a combustion chamber where all the off-gassing superheats and continues to combust. And then you pipe that out the other side through something like a great big bench built out of, of cob, which is a mixture of clay and mud and things. And it can look very beautiful. And that pipe goes through that cob and eventually goes out the other side of the house. And if you build that with enough efficiency, once it heats up and some basic smoking, off-smoking, it all happen. If you go out to the exhaust, once it's burning at full pitch, you put your hand there and feel what comes out of it, there's no smoke. CO2 and steam. That's how efficiently it burns. Well, that combustion chamber generates a lot of heat and that goes into the house. But the surplus heat that's normally lost goes through that long exhaust pipe, through that thermal mass, heats up that thermal mass, and you go to bed and you stop feeding the fire. And eventually the wood that's in the, in the, the tube burns out and is gone. 
And you would think you would wake up to a cold home. But you work up, wake up to a toasty warm home. Why? Because the thermal mass that absorbed all the surplus heat has continued to passively radiate that heat into the home. Catch and store energy. Solar panel to a battery system through an inverter to your electrical appliances. We catch the energy of the sun. We convert it to electricity. We transfer it for light and other needs that we have for electricity in our homes. They all follow these principles. It can be complex. They can be simple. I have a fig tree. I'm on the edge of where figs grow good. It gets a little bit too cold for figs. I find a south-facing hill. I plant my fig tree. I provide a great irrigation. And then around the south side of the fig tree and all around its base, I stack gravel and rock. Now underneath that, I might have great organic matter so that it retains moisture. So I don't have to do much irrigation. But those rocks collect energy all day long. And my fig tree grows where it's not supposed to. Why? Because even in the winter, on most days, there's some period of day where the sun shines. And as those rocks are warmed, even if the fig tree dies back to the ground and has to grow back every year, I can still get a yield because my roots are protected. Catch it and store energy. Next one, obtain a yield. This goes right to return of surplus and the ethical principles. None of this matters if I don't get a yield. I can't go see a farmer who's been monoculture farming and destroying a thousand acres of land every year and get him to switch over even 1% of that operation unless I can help him make a profit and obtain a yield. Even if you don't want to sell, unless all this work input that you're going to do around design and ethics is going to result in at least you being able to sit down at your table with a fresh salad, and in the fall maybe make an apple pie from your backyard and go out and pick a fresh egg up. If I can't give you a surplus, even if it's just for yourself, I can't incentivize you to do it. Profit is necessary for human activity. It absolutely is. We generally as people don't do things unless we get something in return, and there's nothing wrong with that. Even when you say, well, I, you know, I give charity... I don't get anything in return. We get a good feeling, but to give charity, you must first profit. You can be the most noble person in the world, and if you don't create a surplus, you can't give anything. People will look at someone that lived in poverty like Mother Teresa and say, well, she never really had much, but look how much she gave. Well, it, was a matter, it wasn't a matter of how much she didn't have. It's how much she didn't take out of what was given. She created a massive surplus and chose to only keep a tiny part of it and return a massive part of it. It's up to us individually, when we create that surplus, how much we return. But we have to return something. If no other reason, so we can continue to exist. Prime directive, ensure my existence and my children's existence. Well, if I want to ensure my existence, I have to make sure I don't just have food on the table, but I have a place to live, that I have a life that's stable. And that I must create enough surplus that when my children start out and I go away, that I leave them something to pass on to their next generation. And a yield, whether we call it a profit or a surplus of fruit, is how we get that. Profit's gotten a bad name. I want you to understand something about real money. Not fake money like we have in our economy today. Real money. Real money is simply an agreed-upon symbol of value to facilitate barter. The agreement itself between you and I 
is the money. The money is not gold, it is not paper, it is not silver, it is not a flint arrowhead. It is the agreement that this thing, whatever we use for the unit of exchange, whether it's a coin or a paper script, has a value of five years of corn. And five years of corn have a value of two big potatoes. And a thousand big potatoes have a value of a wood deck being built in the front of your home. And all the money is, is a way to symbolize that energy. And that energy is what creates the yield. Without a yield being created, it's not permaculture. Permaculture may save the polar bears, but its purpose is not to save the polar bears. It's to create a permanent culture where we can all exist, where we take good care of the earth, good care of people, and return our surplus. The next one is apply self-regulation and accept feedback. If I start growing things in my backyard and I take every scrap that's produced and turn it into something as a yield so I can sell it. If I cut all my grass flush to the ground and sell it to the guy that has sheep so he can have hay and I take 100% of it out. If every time my trees are big enough to sell as timber, I cut them flush to the ground and sell them as timber as plant them again, it will never be permaculture. Because I will never have a sustainable system. The system will constantly, constantly require more input than output. And then I mean, then what happens? I'll never get a yield. So some of these principles enable the other ones. If I want a yield, the very definition of a yield is more must come out at some point than goes in. And only through self-regulation and the acceptance of feedback Can I ever get a system that will produce for me that way? I must at times look and go, I can't take all of this this year. The asparagus that I planted, it's its second year, there's some shoots, I could break them off and have one meal, I could leave them grow into a giant fern, improve the root system, and start harvesting in the third year. And in the third year, I can harvest a massive amount of asparagus by breaking my shoots off. But at some point, I must say, I've taken enough this year. And the plant must propagate for another season. It must have the ability to catch and store energy for its future too. And I have to also accept feedback. If I do something and I get a negative result, I have to be paying attention back to observe and interact. See, all these principles intermesh. They're almost inseparable. So if I go and I pick my apples too early, And then I have to use ethylene gas to ripen them. That's probably going to have a negative effect on my entire ecosystem. I have to be aware of these things. At all times, I must regulate how much I take out of a system. And I must accept feedback, whether negative or positive. And I must act on the feedback. But with that mind going in, I also have to understand something. If I have 40 acres and I want to do permaculture growing... 100% of those 40 acres can't be dedicated only to growing things that produce food. In fact, I may have to produce more land to produce inputs for the system than outputs for me. In other words, I may have to plant a lot of trees 
especially early on, that fix a ton of nitrogen and do a lot of chop and drop and get no yield from them. So that I can support an eventual forest garden that will be there for 300 or even 2,000 years. I'll put links today. The videos on YouTube from a Jeff Lawton DVD where he will take you to a 300-year-old food forest still producing and where he will take you to a 2,000-year-old food forest that are still producing. That will not happen, cannot happen, without self-regulation. And it applies to everything. If I have a trout stream with a great population of wild brook trout, if I fish it even with line and hook every single day, and if plenty of people fish it up and down the lengths of its banks, eventually we can push the trout population into extinction. Or at least into such a feeble population that it can no longer sustain anyone. And it may take years of abstaining from harvesting anything to bring it back. If I fish it with nets, I can literally strip mine it of its, of its yield in a year. And I get a huge yield my first year. But in my second year we starve. And there's nothing left. And now my only solution will be to go to another place and rape it, or if I want to fix the problem, go to another place where brook trout are and introduce new stock into my sterile stream. I can wait for nature to take a hundred years to do it with bird droppings and things getting in through tributaries and runoff, or I can do it overnight, but I still, once I put it back, I've got to apply self-regulation. Basic things any child understands. If we separate ourselves from greed... Long enough to understand that greed and desire are two different things, folks. People often talk about how greed can be good. Greed is never good. I know you're going to get upset with me, some of you guys, but it's not. Greed is actually the desire to have something because someone else has it. Greed necessitates that if I win, someone loses. Desire. When you say there's good greed, what you're really talking about is desire. If I desire more, I can get more without taking it from you or anyone else. That's a fundamental difference. And it comes back to self-regulation and feedback. Desire is when I go to give my dog something to eat, and he eats it because he wants it. Greed is when I throw him something, he sniffs it, and goes, I don't really want that. And the other dog comes over to eat it. And now the first dog eats it so the other dog won't have it. We have to rise above that level, folks. Dogs are great creatures. I love mine. I do. They're like family members. But I sure hope that I have more thinking ability than my German Shepherd or my Black Labrador. And I hope you do, too. That's what this principle is all about. The next one is using and valuing renewable resources. If something's renewable, that should be the first thing we use rather than the last. In other words, you can tell me that we have no choice but to burn a lot of fossil fuel to run our economy today in America. Oil, gas, coal, and I will tell you I hate the fact that you're right, but I know you're right. But our first effort should be in renewable energy, and we should be making up the difference, and we should be constantly expanding the renewable every single year so that we need less of the non-renewable. Now, peak oil, sooner or later, is going to punch us in the face, folks. 
Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. I, I, I'll t put it to you this way. It doesn't matter if you believe in peak oil. Peak oil believes in you. And it's going to come hit you in the face. It might not hit you personally. You may die. I could be wrong about my timeline on it. I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20 years. It could be 50. I'll be honest. It could be 100. But rising oil prices are going to hit us in the face in five. Maybe two. Possibly one. But one way or another, we're going to deal with it. And you look at it and go, we don't have enough time. We've had plenty of time. Do you know when they made the first working solar panel? I want you to think. I want you to really try to come up with a number on this. First working solar cell. The first time that man was able to take a cell, collect sunlight with it, and produce energy from that cell. Do you think it was 1950? Or after 1950? If you answered yes to either one of those, eh, wrong. 1930. 1930 or later, eh, wrong. 1910, didn't even have a Federal Reserve in the United States yet. 1910, eh, wrong. 1900, turn of the century, the last turn of the century, eh, wrong. When would this be? 1890, eh, wrong. 1883, Charles Fritz, coated a semiconductor uh, with selenium and an extremely thin layer of gold to form the junctions. And the device was only around a 1% effect. So it wasn't very, very effective. But my point is, we had this technology, solar technology, working in 1883. And if we had only focused first on the renewable source And second on the guaranteed source, where would we be today? 1883. No airplane. Damn sure didn't have a spaceship. No TV. I mean, come on. How many things didn't we have? We had a photo cell. And this is not all about, hey, we just need photos. I just want to really drive home to you how far apart we're living from these principles. When we say use and valuable, value renewable resources, it just means we start with them and we use them in a way that we you know, apply self-regulation, the prior principle. The next one, produce no waste. Now, it would seem impossible if you look at our landfills today to produce no waste. But the reality is, If I took away the supply lines that you rely on today, you'd start producing no waste tomorrow. If you had to provide everything for yourself, if you had to be self-sufficient, or if we at least had to be self-sufficient at the community layer, if we didn't have a Walmart on every freaking street corner in America, you'd use a hell of a, you'd produce a hell of a lot less waste. How much of our waste that we produce today is things that don't need to be produced in the first place. How many things come in styrofoam and cardboard and cellophane packaging that don't need to be in styrofoam and cellophane and cardboard packaging? It only exists there so it can be more efficiently crammed into a shipping container sent to us from China. I think some people are China bashers. I'm not a China basher. 
There are certain things that it makes sense for us to buy from China. I'm not a, there are certain things we don't even make in America anymore. We can debate why, but if we want them now, it's the best place to get them. But do we need all of it? Do we need all of it? How much energy inputs that can be composted go down garbage disposals in America today? If you've started composting since you started listening to this show, if you started taking the apple cores and the, the cores of the peppers and the potato peels and all that stuff and started throwing it in your compost bin, I want you to take whatever you've created, I want you to multiply it by 100 million households, which is probably about what there is in America, about 320-odd million people by best guesses, about three to the average household. A lot of people live alone, a lot of people have bigger families, but about three apiece, one-third. How much compost would be produced with that waste alone? There is ways to do this. I'm going to go brief on this one because we're going to go long on today's show. But even if you can't get to a zero waste production level, I just simply ask you to look at any system and go, how much waste can be eliminated? How much waste can be eliminated in any system? Economic, business, agricultural, social, Elimination of waste. The next one is design from patterns to details. In other words, you have to step back and see things at a, at a bigger level. And we have to start observing the patterns in nature. If we just look at the forest and let it be our teacher, it will show us every pattern that we need to follow. It's really an amazing thing when you think about it. I saw this in one of Jeff Lawton's videos. He was talking about a banana circle. And they had this great big circle, the banana trees planted around it, all the organic matter inside of it, and it basically made a series of circles. And the banana trees were growing beautifully. Obviously, this was in the tropics. And he took an old banana tree that had kind of gone its way and needed to be cut down, and he cut it open, and he looked at the inside of it, and the banana itself was a series of circles. The tree demonstrated the pattern that it was best grown in, inside of itself. And that's designing for patterns to details. To understand that we can look at nature and see the way that water flows in a stream with a healthy trout population and understand that that must be purifying and oxygenating the water. And if we create a man-made system that lets wastewater flow through the same flow patterns, that it will do a lot to oxygenate and purify what we previously saw as wastewater, and now we're using less waste. How can you apply that? Instead of me giving you another answer, how can you apply that to business? Designing from patterns to details in a business. How can you apply that to a government, to a town, beyond the agricultural concepts? Ask yourself the question. If you want answers, ask questions. The next one, integrate rather than segregate. Our modern agricultural system is the antithesis of this as well. A thousand acres of corn, ten thousand acres of wheat, five thousand acres of barley, uniform crops grown at uniform distances, at uniform times, and gee, we have problems with pests. Let me make you a promise. If every weekend you just start out cooking a whole bunch of steak, beautiful, beautiful steak, on your grill, great charcoal smell going out, And you just start giving it away in your front yard to neighbors and friends. 
and you produce as much of it as you can possibly cook every Friday night, within a few months, there will be cars lining up on your street, showing up to eat your steak. What the hell does that have to do with monoculture? That's what a thousand acres of corn uniformly planted at a uniform time every year, the same way, is to a corn earworm and the moth that produces it. It's a guaranteed meal served up exactly the way they want it at the exact time they want it because there's no diversity. There's no place. It's, it, it's perfect. There's no place for a predator to hide. There's Everything is food. And everything's my preferred food. Now, if on a thousand acres, <clears throat> I have several quarter acre plots of corn, and they're surrounded by herbs and trees and bushes and other vegetables and other fruits, and I have this massive diversity. I have Predator Central. First of all, it's harder for the earworm to locate the corn in the first place. Because I've got patterns and details going on everywhere that break things up. It's like natural camouflage. Even when it finds the corn, now the very predators that feed on it have great habitat right adjacent to the corn. And everything is not food. I only have this one place as a pest I can go, and I have to go at the risk of my existence. So now you're cooking the steaks, but you're also cooking a bunch of other stuff that the steak eater doesn't really care for. There's a couple snipers on the roof. If somebody shows up to take your steak away... Snipers pick them off. Not very realistic, I know. But that's how the that's how a diverse agricultural system works. Well, I can be the corn moth and I can go lay some eggs, but you know that praying mantis might chop my head off. And when the eggs hatch and a little corn borer comes out and starts trying to crawl inside the ear, a lace wing might eat them. And even though some will get through, the majority won't doesn't happen without diversity. It goes right back to the story I told you at the beginning. The man with the large orchard that was trying to be as natural as he could with the best of intentions was still monoculture. How much better off would we have been if we used and valued diversity in the history of our country and didn't put the blight of slavery upon it? A wound that I think we should be beyond today, but we're still not. If we had listened to people from the outside about problems and that said these things are going to happen if we don't pay, and we had valued diversity and setting up the economic system that we're under today, how much better off would we be? If in your business you value diversity, instead of becoming dependent on a small group of customers selling them one product, you sell several products to thousands of customers, how much better off is your business? It permeates everything. So if you want to grow a great garden, grow a diverse garden. If you want a great homestead, have a diverse homestead. And don't have diversity just simply for the sake of diversity. Understand the interrelationships. What diversity creates the best and most stable system. The next one is use small and slow solutions. And there's a reason for that. And the biggest reason is, if we use a massive solution, even if it works, we become immediately dependent on it, and within this very short period of time, even if it's causing damage, we can't go back. Or going back is painful. Monoculture agriculture in the United States today. Those giant fields of corn. 
We know we're destroying the topsoil. We know we're destroying the land. But government and farmers alike and people all over that rely on that food feel like, what else can we do? We're stuck with it. Why? We used a massive, quick solution. We started chemically saturating the soil. We stopped the diversity. We threw it all away overnight. We became dependent on it. We've done it with genetically modified crops. We've done it with business practices. We've done it with governance. Massive solution without observation and interaction results in a system being stuck in place that's very hard to change. When we use a small solution, a slow solution, and we observe and interact with it, when it's working, we slowly increase what we're doing and we pay attention to the immediate results and the long-term results. If we make mistakes, they're easy to correct. They're easy to correct and it's easy to go back and try something else. Small and slow solutions are the, are the key. The next principle I kind of really talked about already because to me, it's almost like there should be 11 and Lawton and Molson wanted 12 because it was an even number. And that's use and value diversity. Because integrate rather than segregate, use and value diversity to me are almost the same thing. And there's some technical differences there. But I, again, we're long today, so I'm not going to go deep into using and value diversity. But we've got to value diversity. We have to. If we don't do that, we end up totally dependent. Here's another analogy for you. Real world story. When people came to the new world, one of the big discoveries they made and took back to Europe and everything from northern through southern Europe and Ireland and England was a potato. And the people in South America where the potato is native grew literally thousands of varieties of potatoes. But the farming culture, even at that time in Europe, wanted what's the best. What has the best yield? What grows the largest? What's the most dependable? And in Ireland, that answer was the lumper. So everybody grew the lumper. There was actually even a law that said if you're growing potatoes, this is what you're going to grow. This is the potato of Ireland. Then they had potato blight. And then the potato famine that we all have heard of. Why? No use or value of diversity. Where in the Andes, where the potatoes are native, and the native population grew tremendous variety, if a blight had ever occurred, and it did, and, and really hurt the production of a particular variety that year, I don't care, I have a thousand other ones to rely on. Well, it hurts three. I have 900 and, you know, 97 other ones to rely on. That's using and value diversity. The next one is using edges and valuing the marginal. If you look at modern agriculture, it's another great place to look. You usually see great big fields, and at least they want to help prevent erosion. So they have these tree lines, right? So you have like 40 acres spread, and then like a square of tree lines around them and a way in and out for your equipment. And then you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. At least in some farms. Especially in the Northeast. Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, Ohio. You're going to see a lot of farming done that way. Out West, you'll see places where there aren't even any tree lines. Usually they follow maybe some runoffs and creeks so that they're natural places for the trees to grow because you don't want to irrigate them. But that's not valuable land to the farmer. That's the sacrifice I had to make to keep my 40-acre square in reasonable shape, even though I'm destroying it. But the reality is that that edge could be the most productive land on the farm. Growing apples and persimmons and pears and blackberry and raspberry. And if you wanted to, 
into, into the shade growing mushrooms. It would be reasonably possible to have a greater yield of economic value from that margin than for the entire 40 acres of corn. Because the corn's a commodity. It sells at whatever price it sells at this year, and I have to spend a tremendous amount of money to produce that 40 acres of corn. The overall output looks large when I sell my corn at the end of the year if I have a good crop. But what did I have to pay for the seed, for the fertilizer, for the irrigation, in my time, my effort, my soul, machinery? If I don't do my own harvesting, I pay somebody to do the harvesting, what do they get paid? And in the end, I can have a farm that produces a million dollars worth of corn and a farmer that makes $50,000 a year if he's lucky. But I could create in those margins around that 40-acre field a $50,000 crop that's almost 100% profit. So it stands the question, why do we create so many big squares in so few margins? And again, nature is the teacher. If you go watch a guy fish for bass, a professional bass fisherman, you'll seldom see him sitting in the middle of an 80,000-laker lake with his line hanging over the boat. If you do, what you can't see that he sees with his graph is there's some structure on the bottom creating an edge. Generally, what you'll see him do is going along the edge of the lake, though, casting the points, up under branches, in the lily pads, depending on the time of the year and where the fish are, but you'll see him working some sort of edge. Why? Because that vast open water of the pond is largely devoid of life. And most of the pond or the lake's production, its surplus, exists on its edges. Even when there's a great big school of shad out in the middle of the lake that fish like white bass and stripers are eating, There's probably a great huge cloud of plankton that the shad are feeding upon. And the very cloud of plankton is creating an edge. And then the shad come in and create another edge. And that edge is where the surplus is. And that's where the predator fish pick off at the edges. Their surplus. Everywhere we look, it is the edges and the margins where the most surplus in production is. So if we're going to design... We have to value the marginal. We have to use the edges. In a business, if we'll look at the structure of a business, there'll be largely, in a large business, a lot of unproductive people and a lot of unproductive processes. And out at the edges, we'll have the most productive processes. And that doesn't even mean we get rid of everybody else there. But we better value those edges. Better value the salesperson that puts food on the table. The one sales manager who puts food on the table of 100 or 200 or 500 employees. We better understand how he does his job and that we're there to support him. In the military, it's the infantry. It's the edge, the tip of the spear. Everybody else in that military organization exists to support that infantry troop. In your garden, you can have a great big bed. You can have lots of little beds with tons of margins. And then, when it's time for you to harvest or take care of something, all you do is walk your edges, and reaching everything's very easy. In a forest, once we get into the dark part of the forest, we just basically have big timber. 
But as we come out to the edge, we have our shrub layer and our sub-tree layer. That's where our fruiting trees are going to be. That's where our blackberries are going to grow. As we come down further into the edge, out into the herbaceous layer, that's where our all of our herbaceous plants are going to grow. Most of the surplus is going to be where the forest meets the prairie. It's always the edge. It's always the margin. And the last one is we have to creatively use and respond to change. We've gotten to a, a point in the world where we believe change is bad. All the alarmism over climate change is, hey, it might be a few degrees warmer. Can we stop and ask what advantages that might have? Now, again, I'm an environmentalist. If you are a true believer in the cult of global warming, give me a second here and just relax. Whether we're causing it or nature's causing it, if it's going to happen, shouldn't we evaluate it? You know, 200 years ago, it was a hell of a lot colder. We're still in the end of the little ice age. Warming at that time was, trust me, it was embraced. In the medieval warming, it was warmer than now. And it changed and it got colder. And it went into the little ice age. That change needed to be embraced as well. Very hard to do at the time, but with the technology we have today, with the foreknowledge we have today, we can embrace that. That's a big change, and it might be a divisive one. If it's dividing you at the end of my presentation today, let it go. I'll give you some other ones. When we look at 40 acres of corn, and the farmer has a system that at least keeps him alive, changing that to a permaculture operation seems very negative. Hey, I can barely make it as it is. You want me to embrace change. Well, with creative use of change, we could create margins around that 40-acre plot. And we could dedicate maybe one acre of land to this new methodology. And as we see the change taking place, we can embrace it, harness it, and continue. There's a couple little plots of corn and an extremely diverse system and a much more wealthy farmer with wealth being defined, is having your needs met to a point where you have surplus to return. That's true wealth. Wealth is how long can I go forward? How how long am I self-sufficient and self-reliant without needing others? So the relationships that I integrate, the diversity that I value, is by my choice, not at the point of an economic gun. This is what permaculture is really all about. Solving problems with principles and ethics. I brought up a divisive issue today so that both sides of the issue can learn something. We don't have to agree on the cause of the problem to solve the problem. Because my solution is the same as the left paradigm solution. Only it's not through taxation. It's let's improve the planet for everybody. And here are the ways that we do it. And if you just want to feed yourself out of your backyard, this solution is for you. And if you want to be part of the bigger solution, this solution is for you. Permaculture is a system of solutions, if you really want me to describe it. Every presenter describes permaculture as a permanent culture. Because that's where the root of the word is. And it's proper to do so. That's why I did it too. But... To me, its real definition is a system of solutions. So I encourage you to learn more. I will publish today with the show notes a ton of videos you can watch. Four from Bill Mollison on the Global Gardener series. 
I'll put the videos out of the 300- and 2,000-year-old food forests. And I'll put one from an Australian guy that did it in the backyard. And I, I recommend that you get a hold of uh, Marjorie's uh, DVD on backyard food production. I mean, all of this stuff. Learn about it. Learn about it. And integrate it into your life with small and slow solutions. That's one of the very principles. You don't have to do this overnight. You can't do this overnight. There's amazing things that can be done. And I'll finish up with, I'll also put a link to some videos by one of our moderators on the forum where he put um, a swale system in his backyard in a very small marginal piece of the side of his land and the results that he's had so far. It's pretty amazing how simple it really is how easily it was actually done, and what the results are already producing. With that, I'll say, take those small solutions, those slow solutions, and integrate them into your life, folks, both with your homesteading and your gardening and your life and your prep planning. All of it applies. All of it's universal. Go out and do the research and learn. Change the thought process. And then you make your own decisions with that process. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.